Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to give you the background to some of the biggest topics of the day in the Asian region. I'm Andrew People. Well, in this week's episode, we're going to take a look at a company that is arguably transforming the global tech sector, Japan SoftBank. Under the leadership of its founder, Masayoshi Son, SoftBank has grown from small beginnings to become one of the world's most influential companies. Along the way, it has invested in some of the most famous tech firms around, from Alibaba to Uber to ByteDance, helping to foster key technologies from microchips and AI to driverless cars and automated pizza making. It's had its fair share of disastrous investments too, including one in troubled US property firm WeWork. Like so many other companies, SoftBank has suffered big losses as the global economy reels from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. But with its $100 billion vision fund set up three years ago with the backing of the Saudi Arabian government, SoftBank is set to remain a major force for years to come. Well, later on, I'm going to speak to Steve Kaplan, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago Booz School of Business, about SoftBank's impact. But first, to explain more about its rise and just exactly what SoftBank is, I'm joined by Fred Dvorak, a special correspondent with the Wall Street Journal in Tokyo, who has followed the company over many years. Fred, it's really great to have you. Thanks so much for your time. Hi, Andrew. So really, Fred, my first question is, what is SoftBank? Can you just start by telling us about that? It's not really a software company, nor is it really a bank. So what is it? <laughs> Good question. SoftBank is a chameleon. It's changed a lot over the years. It did start as a software distributor. And in fact, the soft from SoftBank came from software. The bank apparently came from bank as in, you know, they, they wanted it to be a bank of software. But it has gone through transformation after transformation from software distributor in Japan to broadband company to mobile phone company to now, I guess you would call it a tech investment firm. And it is, in fact, you know, arguably the world's biggest tech investor now. Absolutely. Can we go back to the start then? I mean, who exactly is this Masayoshi Son and how did he come to found SoftBank? Masayoshi Son is an entrepreneur. He's always been a, an entrepreneur and had that entrepreneurial spirit. He's from Kyushu, the southern island of Kyushu in Japan. And he is Korean-Japanese. As you know, Andrew, there's a lot of discrimination and historical discrimination mm. against Koreans in Japan. And, you know, Japan did colonize the Korean peninsula for many years, decades. Yeah. And during the various wars, brought Koreans to Japan as forced laborers. And then subsequently, many of them stayed in Japan, but never received citizenship. So even today, you can be an nth generation Korean-Japanese yeah. and not be a Japanese citizen. So I think that experience of being Korean-Japanese really shaped Son's personality. Right. He uh, has said in the past that, you know, he wanted to escape the feeling of discrimination in Japan. And that was one reason why at a very young age, 16 actually, he went to the U.S. and finished off high school in the U.S. 
and then went to college in the U.S. And that was a big influence on him, a big shaping influence on him. You went but, to Berkeley University in California, right? Yes, he did. Yes. <laughs> all throughout, though, he was very entrepreneurial. He had all these different kinds of business ideas. He, I think, created or invented an automatic translation machine that he sold to Sharp. Some of that, he later used it as seed money for SoftBank. He had all these other sort of business deals going on the side. In fact, you know, supposedly he was so busy with business and all kinds of little ventures that he was running in the U.S. that he actually paid somebody to help him make sure he graduated, that he didn't fall oh, really? <laughs> classes. Yes, sometimes going to class for him. So uh, he, that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah. And is he sort of particularly skilled at tech himself? Is he a sort of Bill Gates figure who actually, you know, knows what he's doing when it comes to tech? Or is he more of a person who sees business opportunities and understands the sorts of companies that can make it big, even if he doesn't know the sort of technical details behind it all? I would say somewhere in between. He's not a tech person in the sense of Bill Gates. And he is a, a visionary. He loves the vision stuff. But he likes to look at various future scenarios for humanity through the lens of technology. And he does study up. So when he's right. interested in something, he dives deep into it. And he can become very technically proficient. But, you know, he's not a tech person like a computer person like Bill Gates is, that stays in one in one lane, I guess. So then what is he like as a person? Is he charismatic? How does he sort of make decisions? Is he quite instinctive in that way? Yes, he's very charismatic. He's charming. He's enthusiastic. He's passionate. He can get angry easily or, or quickly, get very angry, and then, then he'll sort of make up and he'll hug people. He's pretty ebullient, which is yeah. all kind of unusual for uh, someone who's grown up in Japan. Yeah. He loves to talk about his visions. One of the things, uh, I think it's still the motto of SoftBank is they want to create happiness for humanity. I think he really does believe that. So, you know, that's kind of the person he is. And he can talk forever defending investment ideas, for example, when people disagree with him. But he also makes very fast, straight from the gut decisions, and he's proud of it. Fascinating stuff. I mean, the deal that really seems to have made SoftBank was its investment in Alibaba, the famous Chinese e-commerce company back in 2000. Can you tell us a little bit about that deal, how big it was, how it came about, and just sort of how important that investment has been and the relationship between Masayoshi Son and Jack Ma, who obviously founded Alibaba. It was indeed an important deal. And now it's seen as Son Sun's and SoftBank's defining deal. It started out in 2000, just a meeting between Son and Jack Ma. At the time, you know, Alibaba had only been around for a few years, so it was a very young company. SoftBank had already been around for almost 20 years. It was founded in 1981, so 
you know, Son 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 was a seasoned entrepreneur by that time. He'd he'd already invested in Yahoo, actually, which I would say was the first big successful tech investment he made. Yeah. He made an early investment, hundred million dollars in Yahoo. Then uh, in 2000, a $20 million investment in Alibaba. And the story is that Jack Ma came to sort of pitch an investment to Son Son, but didn't really have much of a business plan. He actually wasn't looking for that much money, maybe you know a few million dollars. But Son Son immediately fell in love with right. his vision. And Son Son will often say it, the twinkle in in Jack Ma's eye, and said, "You need to take more money," and invested twenty million in mm. Alibaba. Subsequently, SoftBank did put uh, more money into the company, but you know the Alibaba stake is currently still worth more than one hundred fifty billion dollars. I mean, it must be one of the greatest investments of all time. And these two characters are pretty interesting, aren't they, Jack Ma and and Son as well? Both kind of visionary, both coming from relatively humble backgrounds, I guess. I mean, Sun's even said, I think, that he feels like a father to Jack Ma. Are they still that close today? I don't actually know. Um, they seem pretty friendly. I saw them on stage together last year, and they were you know, laughing and, and joking with each other. But they've grown apart a bit as business leaders. And they have somewhat different philosophies and somewhat different types of companies that they've ended up leading. They were on each other's boards for many, many years. But this year, they both left each other's boards. So I would guess that, you know, they've they've drifted apart somewhat. But I don't know how they feel. You know, they they still did seem pretty close personally. Mm, Absolutely. Fred, let's fast forward to more recent years. In 2017, SoftBank launched this enormous vision fund with $100 billion or close to in collaboration with the Saudi government. What do we know about why this fund was set up? What's it all about? What's the aim of this fund? Sonsan has always wanted to be a big shot investor. Let me put it this way. He's always been a tech investor. And even while he was running a mobile phone company or a couple mobile phone companies or buying a baseball team in Japan, he's always kept his eye on promising tech investments and invested in them. And he's just wanted to do bigger and bigger stuff. One of his big regrets is, you know, in the first tech bubble in 2000s or around 2000, he lost an awful lot of money. So he he had invested in hundreds of little companies, little startups right. at that time. And SoftBank stock soared. The value of his investment soared. And then it came crashing down. He lost 90, almost 99% of his wealth. SoftBank lost a similar percentage of its value. And Son says, looking back, that he wished that you know, one big regret was that he didn't have the money following that to, you know, make a, a lot of important tech investments and trends that he saw shaping up. You know, they he really wanted to buy Arm, which is, as you know, the UK chip designer. And the price was 32. The price that he'd offered was $32 billion. And SoftBank just didn't have that much money. 
And they had to sell some of their Alibaba steak, which he hates to do. So he's always wanted a lot more money. He's wanted a separate fund that will give him the freedom to do the big stuff that he thinks he ought to do. He's always felt that he wanted to get back in the game with trend-setting disruptive tech investments. And some of his business associates introduced him to MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the soon-to-be crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And famously, Sonsan says that in a 45-minute meeting, he got $45 billion from MBS. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it that the Saudis want to give him all this money and back Masayoshi Son? Is it about sort of diversifying the Saudi economy away from oil and that kind of thing? That's exactly it. Right. And how has Masayoshi Son sort of dealt with some of the controversies around MBS. Obviously, we saw the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi a couple of years ago, and a very controversial incident brought a lot of sort of opprobrium on the Saudi government and MBS in particular. How has sort of Son dealt with the kind of politics of all of this? From what we understand, you know, he's been more careful. It's made the optics worse, but he still has a, a relationship with MBS. He's kept up the relationship. He still wants to do business. So, you know, as we understand the effect on any transactions or business from the the murder have more to do with bad optics rather than someone backing away on ethical principles. There's also been some missteps by the Vision Fund, right? I mean, we work in particular, pretty famous American online property company. Can you talk us through exactly what happened there? Well, WeWork was one of Son Sun's favorite investments. He urged both SoftBank and the Vision Fund to invest billions of dollars. I think it was the, the total between the two of them was close to $9 billion by the end of last year. And he was very, very enamored of WeWork's CEO, Newman, who was another charismatic, enthusiastic entrepreneur like Sonsan. Actually, Sonsan is quite attracted to passionate, charismatic, enthusiastic entrepreneurs. Mm. So he was backing WeWork and Newman in some cases against the advice of his board against what people were calling for in the Vision Fund. You know, some of the other Vision Fund investors didn't want to put more money in, uh, in WeWork. But he did support them almost through the end, through last summer, when WeWork wanted to go public. And at the time that they put out their prospectus, all kinds of details about the company came out because they had to disclose it. And people began to raise serious questions about the sorts of things that WeWork was spending money on, what Newman himself was doing, how he was getting paid, the management, all kinds of questions that led investors to shun the IPO. Mm. And despite advice from all kinds of people, including Sonsan himself, they did decide to go ahead with a roadshow and try and launch the IPO, and it fell flat on its face. From there, everything just went downhill. 
And so is this a sort of weakness potentially of Son and SoftBank in general that they kind of get a bit carried away with personalities and ideas and they don't really do the detailed work to check out what the companies are that they're investing in? Is that a sort of broader problem? I mean, they've got so much money to invest around the world. Are they actually doing that sensibly or is it all a bit scattergun? Well, SoftBank will tell you um, and the Vision Fund will tell you that they do lots and lots of due diligence. And I'm sure they do. They've got a lot of people and a lot of researchers and a lot of money, as you point out. But the bottom line is that Sonsan decides. And if he likes something and he's passionate about it, then that'll happen. I mean, it, it takes an awful lot to stop him if he decides he wants to invest in something. He's very persuasive. He's very passionate. He never gives up. He'll talk for hours. So, you know, when you've got somebody like that who is the key investor of a $100 billion fund, then to some extent, it's what he wants. So it's not like they don't do any due diligence, although some people have described the due diligence as, as research done to uphold the, you know, the views that Son already has expressed. So I think there is a problem there. It's just that it's being run by, you know, a very, very strong character who has very strong opinions. Fred, there's so much we could talk about with SoftBank. I just had one last question, which is, how is SoftBank now seen in Japan? I mean, as we said at the start, he was always something of an outsider just because of his ancestry in Japan. And he went off to America at a pretty young age. But is SoftBank seen back in Japan now as a, a sort of local success story, or is it more complex than that? Well, I think it's a bit more complex. The attitude towards SoftBank certainly has changed a lot over the last several decades. In the beginning, he was quite a pariah almost. There's an apocryphal story that the, the big Japanese banks didn't want to lend to SoftBank in the beginning, and that the banks that he's close to now he's close to because they they did support him at an early age so there's a there's a layer of japan ink especially traditional japan ink that still looks upon sonsan and softbank with a lot of suspicion mm. uh, dislike but you know they are a fact of japanese life you know softbank owns the number three telecoms firm and the you know the number three carrier its branding is extremely strong. They own a, a baseball team and a stadium. So everybody knows SoftBank. It's like a part of Japanese life now. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of fondness for SoftBank from that perspective. And I think there is you know, a fair amount of admiration as well that Sonsan and SoftBank have managed to make such a big global splash. Although I'm not sure that everybody in Japan understands just how big a global splash he's been making recently. Fred, it's a fascinating story. Thanks so much for talking us through that. And thanks so much for your time today. It's been great to talk to you. My pleasure. Well, I'm joined now by Steve Kaplan. Steve is the Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. 
we spoke just now with Fred about the history and background of SoftBank. I wanted to talk to you, Steve, about its broader impact on the tech sector and particularly SoftBank's Vision Fund. I mean, here is a company and a fund with just billions of dollars at its disposal to spend on tech startups and so on and so forth. How has that sort of reshaped the tech sector from your point of view? So you have to to understand the context to, to see what it's done. In a typical year in the U.S., all, all venture capital funds raise about $40 billion in commitments. So that's $40 billion. And let's say they invest the fund over five years. That's like $200 billion coming into the market over five years from over 1,000 firms. Vision Fund was one firm with $100 billion. Yeah. That's just a different scale. I mean, you might use the word crazy. But it is, it is just completely different scale. You know, a thousand firms putting 200 billion to work versus one firm with 100 billion. It's just completely different. So to put that much money to work, you've got to do a couple of things. First of all, you've got to focus on later stage deals that need a lot of capital. So the number of deals you can actually invest in is quite small because you got to put that much money to work. And then secondly, because they're later stage and you have so much money to put to work and you have to get the companies to take your money, you're really pushed to higher valuations. So I would say, you know, those are the the distortions that you ended up having is that you had much more money going into later stage deals than you otherwise would have at valuations that were too high or higher than they should have been. And uh, that's why their performance has not been good. It was predictable. And I'm happy to say I predicted it, you know, four, three or four years ago when I was interviewed. Uh, you can Google me and you'll see I predicted yeah. it feeling like it was a, a bridge too far because those numbers just don't work. So what happened? Yeah, what are the, the, the implications? You know, it's great for the early stage VCs. It was great because, you know, if you funded an Uber early and then they came in and put in a ton of money at a high valuation, it was actually not so bad for you because your value went way up. So it uh, basically means that you something that you bought into a, quite cheaply, you can then sell at a high price thanks to the yeah, existence of yeah, the vision. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. yeah. So, that, so that was actually, there was, there was a little bit of a tailwind for early stage VCs because of this. I think it also pushed some of the other venture funds like a Sequoia and some of the others to raise bigger funds in order to compete, which is also, you know, a bit destabilizing. And again, good for the early stage folks who are in early and get the tailwind of the later stage folks. It was clearly bad for profits or the companies in some industries. So so ride sharing, right, which everybody, you know, has has followed where SoftBank put money into three competitors right. and then they were competing with each other. I mean, come into on. Uber and was it Didi Chushing? And was it Grab in Indonesia? Might have been Grab. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So what happens when you fund competitors? You know, they gave they gave discounts to the, the customers. So it's good for consumers, right? You got stuff cheap. 
they give bonuses to drivers to get them. So it's actually good for your drivers, not so good for the businesses. And that, you know, since they've had their issues, I think they've pulled back on that. And that's actually been good for the companies because it's it's more rational. I think this happened in delivery as well as ride sharing. And then WeWork, obviously, they put too much money into at high valuation. Then the, the pandemic was probably not anticipated, but that was a pretty big disaster. So the key things are the dollars going in were too much. The valuations were high. It forced or, or encouraged some of the other funds to get bigger, which is debatable whether they should have. It was actually good for the early stage folks. And if you look mm-hmm. at the industry performance on the venture side, it's actually been okay, or actually been pretty good over the last 10 years despite this for the tech sector as a whole though i mean you say that the potential issue with softbank is it makes all of these companies more expensive makes them potentially more valuable than they're really worth but we know that quite often in the tech sector there are companies that it takes them a few years can take several years for them to become profitable i mean i guess the famous one would be amazon right that for many years was loss making but now is this extraordinary machine of a company so to that extent could you say that what softbank has been able to do is help companies just at the point when they need it it's there to put in this shed loads of money to keep the companies going when they may not be profitable even if this is an idea for a company that's going to be fantastic in the future sometime so i would say this yeah, you know, if you look at the venture capital performance overall, it's been good. So it hasn't, in that sense, hurt the venture business. It hasn't been good for Vision Fund because they paid prices that were too high and are going to end up not having good returns, it appears. I think what happened with the companies is a number of the companies, because there was so much money sloshing around, went public later. So I think the, the public markets are quite able to take companies that are losing money, but have good businesses and are scaling. And you saw that, you know, with Amazon, right? It's interesting that you have this big movement now to companies going public as some of the big money that has gone into these later stage companies is not there. So Vision Fund sort of pulling back you can't stay private as long as you could have. And, uh, you know, that may be why more companies are going public now when they didn't from, you know, 2016 to 2019. Obviously, the markets are pretty bullish on these companies. Yeah. But, but you, I mean, you can, you've always been able to go public without profits if you have a business that's growing. And it's, it's just a question of when you want to deal with the pain of being a public company. And it, and it is painful. What have you made looking on of the way that SoftBank does its business. I mean, we talked to Fred a bit about how instinctive Masayoshi Son can be, that if he sees a good idea, he kind of goes for it. Whereas maybe other investors, they'd have reams of spreadsheets with numbers and valuations and so on. But he's a real sort of, it seems in a way like he follows his gut. Is that how you've seen it? And what do you kind of make of that way of investing money? So I don't know exactly what they do. So that that I, it's it's hard for me to speak to. If what you're saying is it's intuitive and he's making decisions on the spur of the moment, that would be unlike later stage venture funds. Typical later stage venture funds 
is doing uh, quite a bit of due diligence. They're doing their spreadsheets. I think more importantly, they do a lot of customer due diligence. They do due diligence on the team. So there's a ton of things that the typical later stage venture investor will do. And to the extent you're you're not doing that, you're probably going to make investment decisions that aren't as good. But again, I don't know what they do. So I, I'm, I'm qualifying that. They may very well do those things and they should be doing those things. Yeah. I mean, we saw some high profile cases like its investment in WeWork that went bad. Correct. Is that just the nature of this sector, though, that you're going to pick some good ones, but you're going to pick some bad ones along the way. And that's just the way it goes, because at the end of the day, none of us really knows which technology is going to survive and thrive into the future. I mean, again, going back to what I said earlier, you know, venture investing is hard. Something like half of all venture investments lose money and uh, you end up getting your good return on the half that you make money on and particularly the top 20 percent you make money on. But, you know, the challenge with Vision Fund and where I think it was flawed to begin with is they just had to put too much money to work. Yeah. And that meant that you were going to pay higher valuations in order to get in and that you were going to be limited in what you could invest in uh, because you're going to have to tend to go to later stage deals that have a lot of money or that require a lot of money. So WeWork, you know, WeWork was one where really, I would say a lot of people all along the way were questioning, you know, why is the valuation so high? This is not tech, this is real estate. And that turned out to be correct. So some of these are, are predictably bad, some are not. And, you know, the ride sharing is hard to say. It's still hard to say where that, you know, where Uber is going to end up being valued. But some of them, you know, the WeWorks, not as bad as Theranos, but yeah. it was something that, that when those valuations got high, it was sort of a head scratcher. What have you made of these stories recently about how SoftBank, at least allegedly, was behind this big run up in tech stocks over the uh, summer and it was the so it was revealed to be the so-called market whale that was really kind of driving up prices just to get technical for a minute through the purchase of derivatives and so on what have you made of that because that's not something that you know long-term investors normally do right yeah, that he's uh, he is a unique individual. We'll say that. And uh, you know what impact it had. I'll wait to see people do research on it. Let's see where where those stocks end up. I mean, they they do have good fundamentals. I guess some of them look like they may have gotten ahead of their fundamentals. So you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see. It does seem pretty extraordinary that we all know about tech, the tech sector. It's such a dynamic, exciting area. We read about it all the time. It's taking over our lives. It does seem in extraordinary in a way, though, that $100 billion is almost too much to have. It's almost too much to put into this sector in some ways. I mean, overall, you know, just to maybe put you on the spot a little bit, but do you think that SoftBank and the Vision Fund have been good for the tech sector? Or is there a danger that just too much money has gone after stuff that's not good enough or is overvalued? You know, again, on net, that $100 billion in a market where normally it would be $200 billion is just a, a huge increase. And I think it 
on the margin, raised valuations higher than they should have been. I think on the, the side where it had a negative effect, you know, caused some of these companies to sell things or provide services at prices that were too low. So is it a disaster for the world? No. I mean, in some sense, you know, it was good for some consumers. It was a bad investment decision. The net effects on uh, the world are probably, I, I would say there's some positives and negatives. I guess, right. yeah, I would, you know, if you wanted me to, to give an analogy, which is actually a good one, is the dot-com boom and then right. bust. So in the dot-com boom, I mean, it was like stunning how much money went into companies in 99 and 2000. And in fact, relative to the size of the economy, those years are still outliers. Like we've never had a venture investment environment like 99 and 2000. And the fact is those investments were terrible. The returns were terrible. But did it destroy the economy? No, actually, there were some good things because, again, all the benefits went to the consumer and a lot of infrastructure got built earlier Mm. than it should have been, particularly on the fiber side. And that turned out to be good social value five, 10 years down the road, even though it had terrible investment value. And that's probably, you know, you said you want to put me on the spot. I'd probably, that's what I would probably conclude with SoftBank, that it had bad investment value, but social value, it's much harder to say. Steve, thank you so much for those insights. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. It's a fascinating topic. It's, it's really interesting. It just seems like SoftBank, in many ways, it's too soon to tell the kind of impact it's going to have. But great to talk to you. And uh, thanks for your time again. You're very welcome. Thanks. Well, that's it for this edition of Asia Matters. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to both of our guests today, Fred and Steve, for all of their insights and background on SoftBank. Fascinating company. You can reach out to us, of course. We have a great website now www.asiamatterspod.com. We're on Twitter at Asia Matters Pod. On the website, you can obviously send us feedback. We'd love to hear from you, love to hear your comments. Thank you to Rebecca Bailey for producing this episode. Thank you to Alexander Lestrange as well, as ever, for doing the music for Asia Matters. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with you very soon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>